Good morning. Good to see so many of you here, even on a three-day weekend. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, you can go ahead and start turning to the end of Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at Galatians 4.21 through 5.1 today, and you'll hear 5.1 in the sermon next week as well. While you turn there, this doesn't have to do with the sermon, but I just want to brag quickly on our students as the student guy. Last night we had a praise and worship night combined with Hollyview Church and Cornerstone and us, so three youth groups coming together. There was 15 people, 14 people in a youth band up on stage. They barely had room for all of them. And we had some of our own. Silas Brumbelow was on drums. Josiah Brumbelow was on electric. Nathan Herman was on acoustic. And uh, Luke Harden was on bongos, What shaker. And you did one song on the drums too, right? Was that all of our GBC kids in the band? They did good. And then a bunch of other ones showed up to sing too. But it was, it was an awesome night and really talented young people in the city and a lot of young people that just really love the Lord. And just wanted to share. There's cool stuff happening with our students around here. All right, well, let's uh, get into Galatians 4 today. But as we get there, do you remember when you were a little kid and you'd get separated from your parents? Maybe it was in a mall or at a restaurant or a park at church. I, I definitely remember often getting separated from my parents at church, being a pastor's kid my whole life and wondering where my parents are or who they're talking to. And when you're only knee high, it's pretty easy to misplace your parents and then go looking for them. And you might remember finding that pant leg or that, that dress that you think belongs to your mom and you, you pull on it and only to see that the face looks down on you is not one of your parents. Uh, it's happened to me when I was a kid and it's happened to me as a parent. Sometimes I'll see Olivia after church as she's running around trying to find me as I'm putting stuff away and I'll see her wander off and think that's not the pant leg that she thinks that that is. Probably helps. There's a lot of red bearded folks in this church. Uh, it's happened to my leg. I've had many kids. Some of your kids have come up to me to pull on my leg, and I just see the look of disappointment when I look down, and I am not the one that they are searching for. Uh, as a child, you want to scream, and maybe you do scream, you're not my dad, you're not my mom. And this passage that we're going to look at in Galatians, it, it's a complicated passage. Many commentators think this is the most difficult section in Galatians. But the heart of this passage really has a very simple question, and that is, who's your mama? Is basically what it's boiling down to. Who is your mother? And it's going to that of who your mother is, is determining if you're choosing freedom or slavery. The people in Galatia are very sure of who their spiritual father is. That's Abraham. We've already seen in, in past sermons and going back to chapter 3 and, and chapter 4, Abraham's been mentioned multiple times. Uh, and they know that's who we belong to. We are sons, we are heirs of the promise to Abraham. But in Galatians 4, 21 through 5, 1 today, we're asked to consider who their spiritual mother actually is. So let's go ahead and read this full passage. Uh, if you have it in your Bibles, great, or on your phones, or it should be on the screen behind me. Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children." But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, I know commentators say this is complicated, but I'm sure that made sense to everybody in here, right? Nothing confusing about any of that. We got barren people, desolate ones. People are mountains and covenants. We're going to go through this. Uh, But really, it's important to start in verse 21 and look at who exactly Paul is talking to. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. That's who Paul is speaking to in this section. Those who desire to be under the law. If you were to look back at chapter 4, verse 12, where Mike was at with us last week, he says there, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. So Paul is one who is a Jew by birth, and yet he does not desire to be under the law, and he wants the Galatians to experience that same freedom. But they do want to be under the law. What does it mean to, to desire to be under the law? Well, it really, it really boils down to two things, uh, two words, regulation and reliance. I got that from Kevin DeYoung. The desire to be under the law boils down to regulation and reliance. One, that you want the regulations of the law. What what do I mean by that? Well, if you think back to Galatians 2, and this is going back to Acts 15 in historical context, uh, we have that moment where Paul calls out Peter, Cephas, the, the leader of the disciples. Peter had embraced his freedom in the gospel, and that Christ broke down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. No longer did they have to be a people set apart from one another. No longer did God require, in order to be his faithful people, that you kept certain observances of days, that you kept certain food regulations, that you kept yourself unstained from being in the presence of Gentiles. And Peter had fully embraced that. He was hanging out with Gentiles. So, so he's here, he, he's, in, he's in Galatia, he's hanging out with, uh, with Gentiles, and he's enjoying some delicious pork barbecue, I imagine, whatever he was doing. And then some people came in and said, hey, Peter, I don't think so. That's, that's not what God's people are supposed to do. And he gets nervous. And then Barnabas gets nervous. And they all back down and they say, yeah, yeah, well, we won't eat like the Galatians anymore. And uh, we, we won't eat with them either. And yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. To be a real good Christian, you do need to keep these things. And Paul calls him out. He says, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You weren't keeping those regulations yourself. And now you're insisting that in order to belong to God, you have to keep all of the law's regulations. So Paul says in, in chapter four, you who desire to be under the law, you who think that you need these certain regulations is who he's talking to. Now he's not throwing out the whole law. There's still some some morality and obedience that we learn from the law. Jesus even affirms the law that it's summarized with love God and love your neighbor. But he's talking here about certain ceremonial regulations that had to do with purity and ritual observances of days. He's saying you just want a nice list of things that you can point to. The do's or do nots, the I'm right and you're wrong is what they're looking for. 
So that, that's regulation. The other word is reliance. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 10, it says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. There's, there's, there are those who rely on the law. Now, my, you might say to yourself, I don't, I don't want to be under the law. Who wants to be under the law? But remember, before we so quickly write off the Galatians, I have to do this a lot when I'm reading Scripture because I think I, I know it all. These people were people who believed in Christ. They believed Jesus was God's Son. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed Jesus rose from the dead. These were people like us at this church. Is it possible that you and I desire to live under the law? If you take those two words, regulation and reliance, uh, now you're not saying, I know, man, I wish I could just keep kosher food laws. I wish we just celebrated every festival that the Jews used to, to celebrate. But, but isn't it the case that some would like to simplify Christianity just down to a few manageable commands, a few regulations that we could get right? I don't cheat on my spouse. I give a tithe. I go to church. I mean, not every week, but twice a month and when the weather's not that bad and also not that good, but I make it there and yeah, I, I say yes, sir, and no, ma'am, I treat people well. Some of us would like a Christianity like that. That there's like four or five things that we have to do. And if you do them, you can be good. And if I do them, then I'm good to go. Or maybe you take the other word, reliance. I, I think most of us in this room would know better than to say, I'm earning my salvation. We know that's not the case. But think about what is your confidence in your spiritual walk actually coming from? What makes you think you're doing good as a Christian? Is it your own personal obedience? There are people who came here this morning who are very confident, and there are people who are here that are not confident. If you're a confident person, generally, uh, generally you feel good about yourself, good about life. You keep your head up high. Throughout life, you've always just tended to come out on top or, or toward the top. Your GPA and test scores were good in school. Maybe you're athletic. Maybe you've been one of the good-looking people. Uh, maybe your natural abilities in some areas seem to excel above others. Maybe you feel like you're very cultured. You travel. Maybe you have a great job position. Maybe it's your family, but you have a certain confidence about you. Now, what if you're not the person who's confident? You may think, well, surely I'm not one who desires to live under the law. But, but think about it for a second. That unconfidence, that lack of confidence, is also often the same desire to live under the law. You simply don't feel like you're very good at it, though. You've disappointed someone. There's something very dark and painful in your past. You've not lived up to other people's expectations. You never felt like you could please your mom or dad. Or your house doesn't seem to be on the level of that fancier neighborhood. Or your family doesn't seem to be crushing it at the moment. Whether you're here generally feeling good about yourself and, and pretty confident, or you're feeling deep down like you're not making it and you're not measuring up, it's quite possible that both sets of people are actually relying on works of the law. One thinks, you know, of course I believe the gospel, but I am kind of nailing it. Maybe you're in that room thinking that. And then the rest of us think, well, of course I believe in the gospel, but I know how much I'm not nailing it. And that's why I just don't feel like I'm a very good Christian. Either because you think you are scoring well compared to others, or because you're not scoring well, compared to others. But in both cases, you may actually be 
relying on the law, and you may desire deep in your heart to be back under the law. So Paul, in one sense here, he is addressing people unlike us. Uh, There's these Jewish controversies over regulations and debates about the Torah and the Mosaic Covenant. But when you get to the spiritual heart of it, it is a dilemma of the human condition that we keep running back to live under the law. Give me the regulations that I can pass. Let me rely upon my achievement of these good things. And Paul's going to argue against this line of thinking. Say, you who desire to live under the law, do you not listen to the law? So what he's going to do is he's going to do a Bible study. He's going to take us back to the law, back to the Old Testament and say, if you want to live under the law before you make that mistake, why don't you listen to what the law actually says? And so he looks at things through three angles. This will be our our three points up here. He, He looks at a historical example, an allegorical example, and then a personal application. Uh, those, those three points come from John Stott and how he approaches this text. So, so let's look at the historical argument. He says in, in verse 22, uh, it's written, Abraham had two sons. Now you have to remember, one of the, the proudest and loudest boasts of the Jews was that they are children of Abraham. They stood on that. It was one of their most common claims of salvation. But we are children of Abraham, so we, we get this. It's been given to us as a promise. And Paul says, not so fast. Remember, there were two family lines that were descended from Abraham. So he, he starts to talk about this Old Testament story, and this is a great place for me to put a plug in here before I explain it, the importance of biblical theology. Paul's doing it right here. We have to know our whole Bible. We can't unhitch from the Old Testament, as some might say. We have to know the thread and the order and the flow of the Bible to understand it. Paul knows that who he's writing to, his audience understands their Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. He doesn't have to retell the story because they would, of course, remember it. A bunch of you are going to our biblical theology class, like 70 or 80 of you. That's great. Go next week. Because Todd's going to talk all about the Abrahamic covenant, which we're about to touch on a little bit right here, but not as in-depth as I could have gone. So Paul points out two differences in the lines of Abraham's offspring. They were born by different women, and they were born in different ways. In verse 22, he says, one was born by a slave woman. He's referring to Hagar. One was born by a free woman, referring to Sarah. He says, so so you say you're a, a, a child of Abraham, but who's your mother? Which line are you descended from Hagar or Sarah born by different women? And then they're also born in different ways. And in verse 23, he says the son of the slave being Hagar was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman, free woman being Sarah was born through the promise. And it's easy to look at this verse and just say, that just sounds like very spiritual Christian sort of language, flesh and promise, but, but don't miss the argument that Paul's making. What's the difference between how Ishmael, that's the, the son of the slave woman, and Isaac, the son of the free woman, was born? Well, this is where, let's do a quick refresher uh, of head back to Abraham's story. So this is occurring in Genesis 12, 15, 16, and 21 is where you're kind of getting the beats of this story. We're not going to read all that today. I had to cut a whole lot of this sermon that we could have just done another 30 minutes in Genesis, unless, are we up for, I could just... No, I won't do that on fly. Um, so God had promised Abraham. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 through C. Now the Lord, and when you see capital L-O-R-D, that actually means the name of God, Yahweh, 
been learning about this in our Exodus study with the youth. I'm going to say Yahweh. That's his name. Now, Yahweh said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is God coming to Abraham. Abraham was nobody. He was a pagan businessman in the land of Ur. God says, I want to make a great nation out of you. When God made this promise to Abraham, he was 75 years old, and his wife Sarah was just a little bit younger. She was 65. So most people don't start a family when they're 75 and 65 years old. Uh, that would be another 27 years for me, or no, excuse me, that'd be another uh, 37 years for me before I decided to have a kid. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's in my cards in the future. Uh, but God had made this promise, and he repeats it later in Genesis 15, Abraham is starting to doubt the promise. Some time has passed. He said, oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue to be childless? And God answered, your son, uh, your very own son shall be your heir. At that point, Abraham was wondering, do I need to be like my nephew or one of my servants? He says, no, it'll be your son. And he tells him to, to go outside, to look up at the night sky, to count the stars in the heavens. And he says, your offspring will be like the stars of heaven. And it's here we read in Genesis 15, 6, uh, 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 something that Paul quotes in Galatians, and he, that is Abraham, believed Yahweh, and he, that is Yahweh, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It had nothing to do with anything that Abraham did other than believing the promises of God. And it's at this time that a formal covenant between the Lord and Abraham is made. Todd will talk about that next week more. It's one of the covenants that Paul is talking about in this text. So the making of Abrahamic covenant is unique, though. It's called an unconditional covenant because God takes full responsibility for the keeping of the covenant as well as all the penalties if the covenant is broken. Uh, you can read about that more in Genesis 15. But years went by. Ten years later, there are still no children. So it's not hard to see why Abraham was beginning to wonder how God's promise was going to be fulfilled with the clock ticking and with no apparent progress even though a decade had gone by. You maybe have heard the phrase, uh, they say that God helps those who help themselves. Maybe you've heard that before. I don't think that's biblical. So at the age of 85, that's exactly what Abraham did. In those days, it was sometimes customary to use a surrogate mother if a wife couldn't bear children, and that child would receive the full inheritance of the father. Abraham was 85, but apparently that's not too old to be a father. So Sarah arranged for her servant, Hagar, to bear a child on her behalf. And Abraham basically says, I'm going to help God out. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to make my own contribution to God's promises. The result, of course, is disaster. Abraham married Hagar. Hagar bore him a child. Sarah hated it and treated Hagar very harshly. Hagar ends up running into the wilderness with her uh, ran for her life with her son Ishmael, and then she gets ministered to. Thankfully, God still takes care of her. Later on, about 15 years later, Sarah does finally have that promised child. We read that in, in Genesis 21, 1 through 3. Yahweh visited Sarah, as he had said, and Yahweh did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. 
So 100-year-old Abraham, 90-year-old Sarah finally have the promised child. So now we have these two children with a lot in common. Both are sons of Abraham. Uh, They both had the same biological father. Both are circumcised, the, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Both grew up in the same home. There's some pretty big differences between these two children as well. One was the result of human scheming. The other was the result of God fulfilling his promise. One was born a slave because his mother was a slave. Your, your title came from whoever your mother was. That's why if a king had children with a slave or a free woman, that would determine the status of that child. The other was born free, the heir of a free woman. So the way of the gospel is not the way that says, like, here's how we do it. We're smart enough. We're good enough. We work hard. We put it together. We can come up with a great plan to make this all work out. The gospel is according to the promise. This should not have worked. You had nothing to contribute to it. It was solely by a supernatural miracle of God's grace. With Hagar, Abraham worked. He took matters into his own hands. He tried to be his own deliverer, his own promise keeper. He attempted to do what God meant to do. And that's the way of Hagar and Ishmael. The way of Sarah and Isaac is to say, God, only you can do it. And I can't work it out. I can't make it happen. I cannot be a self-savior. And it's the default of every human person to want to be a self-savior. So we have two different women, two different ways. We have two sons, two women. That's, that's the history, the biblical history. And then second, we get to this allegorical argument. In verse 24, Paul says, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, for some of you, hearing the word allegory might immediately set you on edge, if you know what an allegory is. It makes us nervous, because if the Bible is the true word of God, then we don't do allegories. We take this as truth. Why would we need to change it into something, saying something that it's not? Well, let's understand what Paul means and doesn't mean by this term. Here's what he does not mean. He does not mean to take spiritual lessons separated from history, or to make history say something that it doesn't mean, or to tell stories that have no basis in history. This is not John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress or C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia series that are using made-up characters and creatures to teach a spiritual truth. That is not this sort of allegory. Or it's not like, as some early church fathers would do, they would try to make allegories out of everything. Uh, like one I found was saying that the two coins that were given to the innkeeper in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they actually represented the two sacraments that Christ gave to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. No, they represented coins. They, they were coins in a story. It was showing that he was providing for the physical needs of the man that was beaten. That, that's a bad explanation. That's bad allegory. So it's better to think of Paul's use of allegory here as an analogy, a figure of speech, a spiritual lesson, an illustration. And he draws a series of contrasts of illustrations for his readers. We already had the two sons and the two women. Now we have two covenants, two mountains, and two cities. And he starts piling them up on each other. And so it gets a little confusing of what exactly he's referring to, because there's a lot of biblical history in this. He says these women are like two covenants. So the Mosaic covenant... And then the new covenant, and the new covenant, which we are under today, is really the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, as we saw earlier in Galatians, uh, the covenant of promise. It it all goes to Jesus, is who the Abrahamic covenant is pointing to. So we got two covenants. 
And then he said, there's two mountains. There's, there's Mount Sinai. And if you know your Bible history, uh, if you know Exodus, you cannot escape the book of Exodus. If you know Exodus, of course, the Ten Commandments are given to Moses out Mount Sinai. That's where the Mosaic Covenant is formed. But Paul points out that's in Arabia, almost sort of like suggesting that it's outside of Israel today, that it's somewhere else outside of our borders. But there's Mount Sinai, and then he never mentions the second mountain, but uh, it's implied that the other mountain is Mount Zion. And we see this spelled out in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll we'll go there in in a little bit here. The author there makes a contrast with two Jerusalems, which we'll see, and with Mount Sinai and with Mount Zion. So we have two covenants, two mountains, and then two cities. There's the present Jerusalem. We might call that the Jerusalem below. And and then there's the Jerusalem above. The Jerusalem below is is earthly Jerusalem. Right now in Paul's time, the Jerusalem that exists right then as a city, representative of all of the regulations and of reliance upon the law. And then there's the Jerusalem above the heavenly city, which is free, pointing towards uh, looking at like revelation stuff there. So we have two women, two sons, two covenants, two mountains, two cities. He's setting this all up. And then he brings this allegorical argument to a head in verse 27. He's quoting from Isaiah 54.1 with that rejoice, O barren one, uh, who does not bear. The context in Isaiah 54 is the prophet is speaking of the time when Israel will be in captivity in Babylon. And he's comparing Jerusalem in captivity to a barren woman because God's people have been been taken uh, off into exile in Babylon, and meanwhile, the capital city, the holy city, Jerusalem, it's empty, it's barren. Her people are not there. But Isaiah predicts that there will be a day when the children of the desolate one, Jerusalem, will be more. In other words, there's a great day coming, a, a renaissance, a revival in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, is the promise. We're learning about that in our men's small groups in, in Haggai and, and Zechariah, talking about the rebuilding of God's temple in Jerusalem. So Paul's using it here, though, to make a connection with Sarah, that just as Jerusalem in the captivity was the barren one, so Sarah was the barren one. She was unable to have children. And yet in the midst of that physical impossibility for someone who was already barren and is 90 years old, God said there's going to be a day when her spiritual children are going to be more than the children of those who went the earthly route. Now, this isn't like a mathematic formula comparison that that Paul's making here of how many are going to be saved and not saved. It's simply making the point that you should not rely on earthly means, on flesh, if you go back uh, to 22 and 23. And Paul's reminding them, uh, excuse me, so Abraham, he, he thought he needed Hagar to start the great nation that God had promised because he did things by the flesh, the earthly way. He took matters into his own hands. And Paul's reminding them that's not where the great nation actually came from. The spiritual lesson he's making is trust in what you cannot see and what you can't imagine to be possible. And then taking it back to those who desire to be under the law, he says, you may think that your works amount to something. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm getting some things right. I'm being a good person. I'm giving to the church. I'm being the best husband that I can be. I'm a great friend. I listen to others, and I'm working hard at my job. I got something. But this analogy from Isaiah 54.1 tells us that they might look to be fruitful, but they're actually the barren ones. They will not get you where you need to go. Over here, though, what looks to be desolate, what looks to be nothing, nothing to show for yourself except the empty hands of faith, 
that is going to prove to be supernaturally fruitful. So Sarah, the barren one, she had a future. And you might be thinking, man, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. I, I, I'm barren in a really bad way of what I've done with my life. Well, the good news of the gospel is God says, rejoice, O barren one. You have a future. The very ones who desire to be under the law and have confidence in their own efforts, they're the ones without a future. It's those of us who recognize our need and dependency on God, that we can't do this ourselves. We are the ones that have a true future. So he brings us home finally. He's, he's gone historical argument, allegorical argument. He gives us personal application, starting in verse 28. He says, now you, brothers and sisters, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. He doesn't have to convince his audience that Isaac is the good guy. That's the one you want to be. They know that. If you've been around church and you know this story, you know that. Isaac or Ishmael, we want to be on Team Isaac. Well, what does that mean uh, if we're going to be like Isaac? Well, he goes on in verse 29. He says, if we're going to be like Isaac, we're going to be persecuted like Isaac. Verse 29 says, Just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. So Paul's referring back. Now we're in Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, 9, uh, there's this word translated laugh, that Ishmael laughed at young Isaac. But it could be translated mocked. And Paul interpreted it to be a, a kind of mocking contempt, a, a persecution towards him. Now, what exactly did Ishmael, who's a teenager, say to two- or three-year-old Isaac in Genesis 21? We don't know, but we might speculate that he sort of laughed sarcastically, maybe said, Isaac, you know who the firstborn son is? Do you know who's been loved by our dad the longest? Do you know who's going to be the actual heir? It's the firstborn son. Welcome to the world, Isaac, but you're already in second place. Now, we don't know exactly, but some sort of mocking word, probably something like this. Maybe he's claiming his privileged place in the family. Ishmael did not persecute with the sword, but with words, with disdain, with, with mockery, with scorn. And there's a spiritual lesson here that there is always going to be people who, who kind of lord over others how great they are, how much they've accomplished, how good they've always been or continue to be over those who have been broken and throw themselves at the mercy and grace of God. There are always people who will boast in something other than grace, and they will look down on those who say it only, always, all of the time depends on grace. That's what the Judaizers are doing in Galatia, lording over them. They, they are the true Christians because they followed and they continue to follow the law before following Christ. So that makes them better in their eyes, and they want the Galatians to come on board with them. So that's the first thing we see. You will be persecuted if you're a children of promise. And then second, and this is part of his, his great conclusion though, but if you're Isaac, you're not from Ishmael, but from Isaac, then you are a children of the free woman and you have freedom. He quotes uh, in verse 30, this is Sarah from Genesis 21.10. Now this quote is a little bit troubling to be honest with you because Sarah was in the wrong by wanting to, to cast Hagar out uh, to be rid of Ishmael and Hagar. And we feel sorry for Hagar in that story, but Paul's not trying to judge that dispute here. That's not what he's doing. He's simply quoting from Genesis 21.10 for this specific point. He's reminding them of what they already knew, that the descendant from Hagar was not to be the heir. That was the one 
that was not the one who would inherit. Rather, it was the one who was born of the promise, and that should be familiar to us going back to the beginning of, of Galatians 4. Todd preached on that two weeks ago. We are Abraham's true children, everyone. But Paul reminds us you can be related to Abraham in two different ways, though. But only one way makes you an heir, and that's the way of promise. That's the way of grace. That's the way that does not rely on superhuman resourcefulness, but on supernatural mercy. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of the cross. That's the way of the gospel. So do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that this has to be dealt with. You can't allow people to stay in a church that teach you need Jesus plus something uh, plus something else in order to be accepted by God. You, you, you can't have a church that teaches both. Isaac and Ishmael are incompatible with each other. You can't have a church that preaches and denies the gospel at the same time, which is what the Judaizers are doing. Grace and legalism are hostile to each other. They're like oil and water. So all of this argument in this section is saying there are two ways to relate to God. One is through our own efforts, but this makes a mess of things, and it leaves us uh, enslaved and hating grace. The other way is to realize that we can't do anything to contribute to what God has promised. We have nothing to offer God but our inability. And God chooses to keep his promises to people like this by fulfilling his promises as a gracious gift. And this way leads to freedom. So how does this apply to all of us? Well, it, it really happens in, in verses 31 and, and 5.1. He says, so brothers, we are not children of the free slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Well, I think the simplest and clearest application of this allegory is that salvation is received as a work of God given to us as a gift apart from human effort. This gift from God is called grace, something we do not deserve, something we did not earn. We are saved not by our works, not by our efforts, but by grace through faith apart from human effort. Salvation does not come from our own doing, but is a gift from God. And it's because it is a gift of God and not of our own works Salvation as a gift brings freedom. Roger Busker has pointed out to me right before I came up here, this is Pentecost Sunday. I didn't even know that. Thanks, Roger. And this is a celebration of the fact that we don't have to follow that stuff anymore, that the gift of Jesus, of what he's done for us, and the Holy Spirit coming to dwell inside us marks us as new and free. And we need to not forget that. There's no reason to go back on what we think we need to do to make ourselves free. So Paul ends his allegory, he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Well, here's how I understand this freedom that, that, that Paul is talking about in the context of receiving God's promises apart from or minus human effort. I am enslaved, you are enslaved, when I, by my own effort, seek to achieve the things that my heart desires, the things, the things to do, the things to be, the, the things to have. Things like my own salvation, uh, the fulfillment of God's promises, a joy and peace found only in relationship with God, being righteous and blessed by God. I am enslaved when I try by my own efforts to get these things that are impossible for me to attain. Now, why? Why does adding human effort to accomplishing the promises of God bring bondage and enslavement? Well, it's because the things that 100% come from God are the very things that I, we, need the most 
that we most long for. And so these are also the things that I, we, fear the most not having. It is this fear of not having that I think is the root of our enslavement to human effort. Just like with Abraham and Sarah, uh, what they did when they took Hagar is the means to accomplish God's promises. The enslavement of the human heart is the fear and false belief that God's not going to deliver. Therefore, I need to act. I need to take things into my own hands. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. That's what we do. God's not going to save me. I need to save myself. God's not going to bless me. I need to bless myself through hard work. God's not going to give me joy or peace. I need to find them for myself. God's not going to really forgive me and declare me righteous. So I need to practice self-righteousness and do my best to deny, deny, deny any wrongdoing. And if that doesn't work, I blame, blame, blame that someone accused me of wrongdoing. The enslavement of human effort is manifested in our fears. We see it in the fear of making a mistake, the fear of, of not being good enough, the fear of being judged by others, the fear of being rejected, the fear of not having friends, the fear of what others think, the fear of not being respected or being liked, the fear of not getting my fair share, the fear of not being in control, the fear of what happens if I do not get my way, the fear of being alone, the fear of being judged unrighteous. And so because of these fears, we fight and scratch and give excuses and pretend to be people we are not and say yes when we'd rather say no and are easily influenced by what the crowds think and so on and so on and so on. The oppressing fear has control of our lives. And that is the covenant of Sinai, is what Paul's saying. When the people stood before God and were told, if you fail to keep this covenant, this was a conditional covenant, not an unconditional covenant. If you fail to keep this covenant, all these curses will come upon you. It's the covenant of fear. This covenant of fear is a symbol of how life is lived, I think really by all people in the world. And that includes us until we know Jesus. But there's a different covenant seen in God's covenant with Abraham. God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, my promises to you are fulfilled by me alone, not by your effort. Therefore, since it is a covenant that is kept and fulfilled by God, not by your efforts, it is therefore the covenant that brings freedom. And here's that freedom. I don't have to worry about failing because it's not on me. I don't have to be afraid about being alone because he will never leave me. I don't have to be afraid about being good enough because he is my righteousness. I don't have to worry about getting my fair share because I inherit the kingdom. I don't have to be afraid about not being in control because I'm not in control. He is, and the Lord does a much better job with my life than I do. I don't have to worry about not being happy, not finding joy, because he is my joy and he is my peace. I don't even have to fear or worry about dying, for even in death, he has me. This is the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember that you belong to the new covenant in Jesus Christ, which is a covenant of grace that trusts God to keep his promises. And as we sang, all his promises are yes and amen. Paul says there's two covenants, two mothers, two sons, two mountains, two cities. Know which one you belong to. Are you under the covenant of fear and human effort? Or are you under the covenant that trusts God to keep his promises? In Hebrews 12, I mentioned we'd look at this briefly. It speaks of these two covenants and reminds those in Christ exactly which covenant they are under. In Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, 
the writer of Hebrews, he's, he's describing Mount Sinai when God's presence comes on the mountain and all of its power, there's fire and lightning. And God says, if you even touch the mountain while I'm here, you're going to die. Uh, this happens in the book of Exodus. Again, can't escape Exodus. So Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 says, for you have not come to what not, to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is the covenant of fear and human effort. It, but there's two covenants. That's the first one, Mount Sinai, the uh, Mosaic covenant. But then reading on, we come to the second one in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. There we get our Mount Zion reference. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We get more Genesis biblical theology with Abel there. In Genesis 4, Abel's murdered by Cain, and his blood cries out, murder, murder, I demand justice. Well, the blood of Jesus cries out, forgiveness, forgiveness. Justice is decreed, it is finished. The writer of Hebrews is doing the exact same thing that Paul is doing in Galatians. He's reminding them, of the covenant they are under. You have not come to this mountain of smoke and fear and trembling, but instead you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And our assurance, as Paul says in, in, in verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul is reminding them about who they are and the covenant to which they actually belong. And the same is, is true for you and me. To live in the freedom of Christ and to cast out this, this slave of fear of keeping the law, you must know and keep reminding yourself of the covenant you are under. Uh, there's a story that's been told numerous times of the great reformer Martin Luther, back in your hands, Todd and Mike, as we keep up bringing Luther in Galatians. In the church that he was pastoring, he preached the gospel to his congregation week after week after week after week, and his people wondered why he couldn't move on. Surely we get the gospel by now, pastor. Why do you keep preaching us the gospel every week? And his answer was, because every week you forget it. We never move beyond the gospel because the gospel is what saves us. It's not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the middle and the end. That's why Paul keeps circling back. He keeps reminding us of the gospel. He uses every tool in his disposal to help us see the gospel and its beauty as opposed to trying to earn our standing with God on our own. All we bring to God is inability. He gives us everything we need as a gift through Jesus Christ. I've got the best news ever for anyone sitting here who has not yet trusted Jesus to save them from your sins. You don't have to save yourself. Jesus has already accomplished the work of receiving the punishment for my sins and your sins that we so very much deserve. He has died on the cross in our place so that we don't have to. That's where we should be. And then he rose again from the dead to prove that he is God, that sin and death has been defeated, and that we can be forgiven of all our sins and enter into eternal relationship with him. And for you to earn this, here's what you got to do. Nothing. You can't earn it. 
All you have to do is believe that you are incapable of saving yourself and ask Jesus to forgive you and save you instead. I shouldn't have to convince anyone here that you can't save yourself. We're probably all very aware of that. But we all know through our own efforts how short we fall at trying to fix and make ourselves better. So please, if you have not yet done this, don't put off making the most important decision of your life. Give yourself to the love and grace of Jesus. If you want to talk about that more, I'm here. Our elders are here. Talk to a friend you came with. I'd love to talk with you about that. For the believer, remember what God has promised you in Jesus Christ. He has promised that he is with you to the end of the age. You are not forgotten. You are not alone. He has promised you that your sins are forgiven and that your goodness is his righteousness. You don't have to worry about what God thinks about you. He loves you. He sees you not through your sin, but through Christ's righteousness. He's promised you real joy and happiness. The joy of the Lord is my strength, we sing, we read. Blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, the hungry. We're not blessed because of human efforts, but because the kingdom of God in Christ is breaking into our world. Knowing him does change lives and change hearts. He's promised you abundant and eternal life. There is nothing in this world that can take that away from you. These are just some of the promises that God has made to you. Living in these promises as gifts of grace provides a freedom that this world cannot give. Live in that freedom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your grace and mercy, how you initiated with Abraham to bring him to you. Um, how you initiate with us to bring us to you uh, through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. God, I pray um, that we all will just take a moment to examine ourselves. Do we desire to be under the law? Are we looking for ways to to prove ourselves to others, to uh, play the comparison game of we're better than or um I don't know, on an upward trajectory as opposed to the people in this church or, you know, the heathens in Portland or whatever we might do. But God, help us to change our hearts to recognize that we are incapable of saving ourselves. It is only through you and your promise that we can be made free. God, for those in here who feel like they are not good enough and they are comparing themselves of, I will never be like that. And how could God love me? How could anybody see me? Just help them to understand who you say that they are, that they are loved. It's not about what they do, but it's about what Christ has done for them. Lord, if there's people in this room who have not yet come to place their faith in you, make it obvious to them that they can't save themselves. There's no amount of good, there's no amount of right that they could do that would balance the scales of what it means to live in disobedience to you. Um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak clearly into their hearts that there would be no denying the fact that you are real and that you have provided a means of salvation in our lives. Lord, help us to live in freedom, to walk in freedom, uh, not in a way to lord it over others, but because we have been truly changed and transformed, and we want to bring that freedom to others around us. I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.